0: Open up your Bibles this morning. We're going to continue our study through Proverbs. We'll be in Proverbs chapter 4. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been going through a series called Walking with the Wise. And we're going to be looking at the wisdom literature in the Bible, beginning with the book of Proverbs. Last week, we were in Proverbs chapter 3. And Kevin took us through a portion of that chapter and showed us that the good life, no matter how we may define that... Biblically speaking, the good life is actually lived, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. That the good life doesn't begin with a change in circumstance, but actually in a change of heart. One that's set on God and His commands. And that flows outwardly and gives shape to the rest of life. And so this morning we're going to dig a little bit deeper into that topic in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. So let's read God's Word together sage says this my son be attentive to my words incline your ear to my sayings let them not escape from your sight keep them within your heart for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the springs of life put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's word. Let's go before him and ask his help in understanding and applying it. Heavenly Father, you are the helper of the helpless. And Lord, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded uh, that our heart is supremely important. Uh, Lord, you are the one who sees the heart who judges the heart. And thankfully, you're also the one who controls the heart. And so, Lord, as we look at our hearts this morning and how they work and how we're to guard them, Lord, I pray that we would not despair, but, Lord, that we would turn to you with hope and joy. Uh, Lord, and that you would set our hearts on you. Teach us to guard them, Lord, so that the good life flows from us and we live wisely rather than as fools. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So beginning in the 1840s, the Industrial Revolution had made its way to the United States. And one of the premier cities that really benefited from the Industrial Revolution was the great city of Cleveland, Ohio. If you're familiar with that, it's home to America's team, the Cleveland Browns, just as a side note. Um, But. With the Industrial Revolution, there came sort of a a nasty underbelly to this, right? As as businesses and manufacturing plants moved into Cleveland, Ohio, uh, companies such as Sherwin-Williams or Public Steel, Standard Oil, they all moved to Cleveland, and they settled along the banks of the Cuyahoga River. And you can imagine what happened next, right? Within about 30 years of being there, pretty much every manufacturing plant that had set-up shop along the banks of this river had started to just dump all of their waste into the river. And as you can imagine, this had devastating consequences, decade after decade after decade of this being treated like a sewage disposal. And so in 1922, so some 50 years or so after uh, after this had really kind of hit its peak, engineers at the water department determined that the pollution of the river had contaminated the city's water supply. And not only that, but it threatened to deplete their water supply long term. People who lived during this time described a visible layer of oil on the surface of the water. That you'd walk by the river and you could just see the oil slick on top of the surface there. They also described the river being littered with dead fish and animals that had come to the river to get a drink and died instantly and just fallen into the river. So this is a nasty, grotesque Scene and in fact, this river became so polluted that in 1969, I don't want to single out any of you, some of you may remember this. In 1969, this river actually caught on fire. Uh, I mean, if you can imagine being in downtown Cleveland and seeing an entire river ablaze and it burned for about 30 minutes uh, and did some $50,000 worth of damage, and what's amazing is not so much that the river caught on fire, that is amazing. But that was the 12th time since 1868 this river had caught on fire. Now, this particular fire is the one that captured the attention of the national media, mobilized the federal government, and we have a lot of things such as the EPA and the Clean Water Act that that came out of this. But there's sort of a, a tragic irony in this mental picture that we have in our minds right now of a river that was supposed to supply life to a community, to a city, being something that instead brings death. And what was meant to provide life and nourishment was doing tremendous harm and destruction. Why? What was the change, right? Well, the river had been polluted upstream and that pollution had made its way downstream. In Proverbs 4, the sage here, says that our hearts work very similarly. He compares our hearts to a wellspring. And so this is our, our thesis this morning is that our hearts, like a river, are constantly flowing out into the rest of our lives, so we need God's wisdom to help us guard our hearts. And so we're going to look at two things this morning to sort of help us understand how this works. Number one, if we're going to guard the heart, we first have to understand how the heart works. So we're going to look at how, uh, how Solomon describes our hearts and what this tells us about how they function. And then secondly, we're going to see how we then guard our hearts as a result. So number one, how the heart works. In verse 20, Solomon begins sort of a new exhortation here. But it's a familiar invitation. He says, My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Solomon is inviting his son to heed his wisdom. It's been the invitation uh, all the way up until this point, and it's actually going to be sort of a repeated emphasis all the way through Proverbs 9. Solomon has made some mistakes in his life, and he's learned wisdom the hard way. So like a good parent, he's inviting his son to heed this wisdom rather than learn the hard way. And so what is this wisdom? Maybe be said that biblical wisdom is letting the presence, the promises, and the commands of God shape the way that we do life. I'll say that again. Biblical wisdom is letting the presence, the promises, and the commands of God shape the way that we do all of life. Kevin said it this way a few weeks ago. It is the skill of living well in God's word. So wisdom is more than knowledge. It's meant to have a tangible impact on our lives. And in verse 23, Solomon gives us a characteristic, uh, a tangible expression of what a wise person does. And verse 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life it says that a wise person one who has treasured God's wisdom in his heart knows to guard the heart because it's important and so when we hear the word heart here in a western context the first thing that probably comes to mind is emotions but in the bible however the heart is actually more significant than that. It's more than just the seat of the emotions. In the Bible, the heart is the seat of your intellect, your will, and your affections. In other words, it's the engine and the control center for all of your life. Tim Keller describes it far more eloquently when he says this, the heart is the seat of your deepest trusts, commitments, and loves, from which everything else flows. So what the heart most loves and trusts the mind will find most reasonable, the emotions will find most desirable, and the will will find doable. All of life is lived out of the overflow of the heart. Whatever our hearts are loving, whatever they are believing, whatever they are treasuring, will show up downstream in what we do. We see this all over Scripture, James chapter 1, verses 14-15. through 15. James says this, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Jesus, in Matthew twelve thirty five, it's what we read for our confession of sin this morning, that the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In the preceding verse, Jesus applies it to our speech. He says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Every part of our life flows from the heart, and thus our lives reveal the disposition and the health of our soul. So now it's time for us to get a little bit uncomfortable. We have to ask some hard questions. And I'm asking them along with you. I've been asking them all week, so I'm with you in this, but let's ask a few questions. What does our behavior, what does our life say about the condition or the health of our heart? The sage gives us three categories for guarding the heart, but I want to use those as a diagnostic for just a minute. Let's ask ourselves some questions. Verse 24, he says, to put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. So the first thing he applies this principle of the overflow of the heart to is our speech. And we're going to ...deal with this topic more intensely in a couple of weeks... ...but let's just sit back and sort of ask ourselves the question... ...what does my speech say about the health or condition of my heart? When I sit back and take inventory of my speech... ...the way I talk to my wife... ...the way I talk about other people... ...the way I talk about the world... ...the way I talk to myself about myself... ...what is my speech telling me about the condition of my heart... Is my speech revealing a heart that's been shaped by the gospel of grace? Or is it an angry heart, a critical or a harsh spirit? Is it revealing a heart that trusts God's loving sovereignty or is it revealing worry? Is my speech revealing a heart that's been shaped by God's truth or one that is believing lies? Our speech tells us a lot. Verse 25, he says, let your eyes look directly forward and let your gaze be straight before you. Next thing he applies this to is what we give our attention to, what we set our gaze on. What does our gaze tell us about our heart? Think about what we watch on our TV, on our phone. Does it reveal a heart that's pure? When I'm scrolling on social media, do I find my heart content with what God's given me? Or do I find myself unsettled and unsatisfied, wishing I looked like someone else or had what they have? What we look at tells us a lot about our heart. Next in verse 26, he says, Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. So what about the path of our life? When I look at the course of my life, what does it tell me about my heart? What do things like my calendar and my bank statements reveal about what I love, what I treasure? Is my life marked by integrity? Am I the same person at church that I am at work, that I am at home, that I am in traffic? Is my life marked by integrity? What does the path of my life say about my heart? This may be sort of a new way of thinking, but it's helpful and it's incredibly biblical to evaluate the true condition of our heart. And this isn't an exhaustive list, right? We can take these questions and look at any part of our life and ask, what is this saying about my heart? And with Scripture as our guide and the Holy Spirit nudging us along, we should regularly be taking inventory of our lives and see what it tells us about the health of our soul. Our life reveals the contents of the heart. And I think I really started to get this. Lord willing, I'll get it more in 10 years. But in our second year of marriage, I really started to catch on to this. Um, I realized when we got married, and I've told you this before, that Kaylee and I have two different standards of what it looks like to clean the house. Okay? Um, Now, I want to just say this as a a disclaimer. I'm going to have multiple disclaimers through this. But number one... um, Please don't freak out when you invite me to your house. I don't care what your house looks like. I don't care. Okay. So please don't worry like oh Zach's coming over, quick, Junior, go dust the baseboards. Okay. I get, please don't do that. All right. Um, I care about my house. I'm not worried about yours. All right. You you just have a cup of coffee waiting on me. I'm gonna overlook the laundry in the corner. Everything else. Please don't worry about that. I'll get to the other disclaimer in a minute, but one thing I realized, you probably know what the other disclaimer is, right? But I realized when we got married that we had two different standards of cleanliness, and hers is normal. Mine is unrealistic and sinful. Um, So early on in our marriage, I would get frustrated with her because our cleaning standards didn't quite line up. And because I was way too godly to ever just get mad and blow up about it, I would instead make passive-aggressive suggestions. Or I would just get icy if she didn't do it the way I wanted her to, or she just wasn't, uh, you know, staying on top of laundry like I think she ought to, whatever, right? So I would just get kind of cool, kind of detached. And she knew what I was doing, and she knew that I was frustrated, and she would call me on it. And finally it dawned on me that the root of my frustration actually wasn't my wife. It was actually revealing something about my heart, that it was a heart-level issue. So what kind of things are going on in my heart? i right, just full transparency here. What kind of things were going on in my heart when I would get frustrated at Kaylee over the differences in cleaning? It came down to two things that was telling me about my heart. I'm sure nobody in this room can relate whatsoever. At least that's what I'm telling myself to, to feel better, right? Number one was I had a really sinful need for control, right? With so many things in life that I couldn't control, dead gum cleaning the house was one I can. And so we're going to do it. Uh, and it's going to be a spotless house. And so I would obsess over it because of my need for control. The other thing I realized was that I had a need for other people's approval. I wanted people to walk in and marvel that my house was clean so they would think I had it all together. See, Kaylee isn't really the problem. Her cleaning's not the problem. The problem is my desires. It's the idols of my heart that are the problem. Idols pollute my heart And that pollution makes its way downstream Into every part of my life And this is why Solomon tells us That we have to be vigilant To keep the heart So how do we guard the heart? Let's move to point number two If we understand that all of life Flows from the heart What does it look like then To to guard the heart So that the what flows downstream Is righteous So As I mentioned earlier in James chapter 1, James attributes our sin back to the desires. He says that really what's at the root of our angry outbursts, what's at the root of my discontentment and all the other sins that we justify is not my circumstances, it's not another person, it's my desires, right? It is a sinful desire that is welling up in me and spilling out into my life And so fundamentally what it's going to mean if we're going to guard the heart, to be vigilant to keep it, we have to first understand that we have got to fight sin at the level of desire, at the heart level. The way that we guard the heart is by addressing sins at the heart level. So if I see sin in my life, no matter what it is, I have to learn to ask the question, what am I really desiring? What idol is this sin shedding light on? What does this sin or behavior tell me about what my heart is trusting and what it is treasuring? This means I have to learn to recognize and repent of wrong desires before, and as James says, they give birth to sin. So if I spent my entire marriage simply, uh, simply repenting for being frustrated at Kaylee, then I'm never going to change. And our communication is not getting any better, right? I'm going to stay in that cycle. So what God does is he uses circumstances and he uses people to show us our sin, to show us those deep desires in the heart. And I need to repent of those desires. I need to target my repentance at that level. So that means I need to repent of my disordered desire for control. Because I can promise you my idolatry of control is not just stuck over here in a corner of just cleaning the house right my desire for control is going to trickle out into everything else so i need to repent of that desire for control i also need to repent of my need for the approval of other people because that also is not relegated to house cleaning it's going to trickle out into everything else in my life it's going to keep popping up in other places And so I see that these desires are sinful, and not every desire we have is sinful. But what James tells us is that we have desires that are disordered, meaning that we have some things that we desire that are wrong, that are just outright sinful. We shouldn't want those things. And we have other things that we just want too much to an idolatrous extent. And so I need to repent of these things. So what does that look like? A man named Bob Flayhart at Oak Mountain Presbyterian in Birmingham, uh, he created this thing called the Gospel Waltz for how we repent. If you've been at Grace Fellowship for very long, you've probably heard Kevin mention this before. It's incredibly useful. So when I when I see these desires that are either outright wrong or they're over desires, how do I repent at the heart level before it gives birth to sin? First, I need to see that these desires are sinful, and then I need to confess those specific desires to God. So that's the first step is confess, right? I'm going to confess my specific desires and the sins they lead to to God. And secondly, I need to cling to the gospel that my worth is not tied to the approval of other people because God has set his everlasting love and approval on me in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So we believe the gospel, we confess our sin, and then we believe the gospel. Those are the two first steps of the gospel waltz. I also know that because of how much he loves me in the gospel, I know that scripture says that he can work all things for my good and does so. And so that means I don't have to be in control. I can relax. I can ease up. And so we confess our sin, we believe the gospel. And then the third step in the gospel waltz, once we've confessed and we've applied the gospel to those sins. Third is we obey. Look at how Solomon tells us practically to guard the heart. It's what we used earlier as a diagnostic. It's what we say, what we set our attention on, and the path we set our life on. So what we habitually say and what we habitually gaze upon and what we habitually do with our lives actually has a direct impact on the heart. So we've said that what happens at the heart is going to trickle down to the behaviors. But what Solomon tells us is practically, we can do things that actually shape and influence and lead our hearts. And he gives us these three things, our speech, our attention, and the path of our life. So what we do with our lives reveals the heart, but what we give ourselves over to will also shape the heart. So what we habitually say In verse 24, what we habitually say will shape the way we see the world and the image bearers within the world. What we say has a profound impact on that. Then next, what we set our gaze on, what we're looking upon, what we habitually give our attention to, will shape the affections and the priorities of our life. The path of our feet, what we give our time, treasure, and talents to, also shape our hearts. so this means that guarding the heart is actually far less about cautiously avoiding sin and more about joyfully obeying and walking in wisdom. So if we give our speech to what is good, it will keep us from speaking what is perverse and harsh. If we give our attention to what is good and glorious, it will keep us from gorging on the endless buffet of distractions around us. If we give our energy to what is good and commendable... It will keep us from veering off the path of wisdom. Examples of this that we see in Scripture. One, Scripture says that rather than cursing your enemies, Jesus tells us to what? To pray for them. It's a completely different use of speech. Why does Jesus tell us to do this? Because praying for our enemies changes our hearts. It's a lot harder to be sinfully angry with someone that you are regularly praying for. And just to be clear, I don't know if y'all remember the country song that came out like 15 years ago called I Pray For You. He was like, I pray that, you know, your brakes go out going down a hill. Pray a flower pot falls from the windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to, right? This isn't the kind of praying we're talking about. Um, Jesus says we, we pray for our enemies, for their genuine good, for their growth in godliness, for their salvation if they're not a believer. Because that actually changes us what we say changes our hearts. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, rather than speaking perversely or harshly, we aim to speak in such a way that we build up and encourage those around us. So if you're a person who struggles with the way you speak to or about other people, the answer is not just to try harder like the little engine that could, not to say bad things. It's actually to give our speech over to good things. Next, rather than living a life of constant, Distraction, Scripture tells us we can behold the glory of Jesus in the pages of Scripture. And as we gaze on Him, 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we gaze on Him, we become transformed into the same glory from one degree to the next. We can give our eyes to something better. Romans 12.1, rather than wandering through life, acting on our sinful desires and impulses, we are to present ourselves to God As a living sacrifice. And use our time. Our treasure and our talents. As a spiritual act of worship. We can give our our lives to something better. We can easily allow our hearts to become polluted. By giving them over to foolish things. The wisdom of scripture tells us. The way to guard our hearts. Is not only to avoid contaminants. But to pursue worshipful obedience. In all that we do. Now. Now. There's a tension here we need to address, and I'll, I'll say this as we wrap up. We understand that at the heart level, right, what's going on at the heart is going to come down to our obedience. And this is where the metaphor of the river and cleaning up the river sort of breaks down, right, that cleaning up the river at the bottom doesn't affect what's going on at the heart, right? So it would have been incredibly foolish, the Cuyahoga River, for the city and activists and the federal government say, you know what, you're right, there's a massive pollution problem. Quick, send them a blank check. Let's send volunteers. We're going to get everybody down there in that river cleaning up oil, and we're going to get this river cleaned up, right? What's the problem with that? Because companies are going to keep dumping stuff into the front of the river, right? Up Upstream, there's still corruption going in. There's still pollution going in. And so the first step is actually not cleaning up what is downstream; it's stopping the contamination that is upstream. And so what we can easily drift into as Christians is saying, "All right, I see these sins going on in my life. I see that I'm an angry hurt person or a harsh person, or I'm, uh, you know, I'm greedy. Um, you know, whatever." Fill in the blank. And we can say, all right, now what I need to do is I need to double down and I need to try harder and do better. And if you've been following Jesus for any length of time, you know that what happens is, is that you stay downstream trying to clean up behaviors and the heart never changes. And so what ends up happening is we stay in this cycle. Might do better for a time. And we end up falling right back into the same patterns of sin and foolishness. So what this proverb is not telling us is that if you just give yourself to better things, the heart will be changed. When Solomon says that we can walk in wisdom, that we can walk and put ourselves to better use, give our lives to something better, he's saying that shapes the heart, but that is not capable of changing the heart. In Ezekiel 36 God was speaking to his people who were in a similar predicament and he promised them that he was going to come and give them a new heart. He was going to remove the old heart of stone that's so resistant to obeying his commands, so incapable of loving him, so incapable of a life of wisdom. And He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to remove that heart from you and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, one that is sensitive again. One that delights in me. One that loves me. One that delights in obedience. Friend, if you have kept yourself on this never-ending cycle, this treadmill of behavioral modification, the offer is for you to come to Jesus. And when you place your trust in Him and you stop trying to clean up your own polluted heart, something amazing happens. Jesus comes and does what we can't do. Jesus comes and actually changes the heart. Then we are free to give ourselves over to something better. Then we are free to live a life of obedience, one that is a living sacrifice to God. And just full disclosure here, anyone in this room who has been walking with Jesus will tell you that when you come to Jesus, that will not be the last time you go to him for help. I wish it was easy enough that, you know, when we come and place our trust in Jesus, we get new hearts and new behaviors and old sin patterns just poof, go away. And it just doesn't work like that. He is going to, over and over again, reveal our sin to us. And he will use trials and circumstances and relationships. He will use anything at his disposal to show you the sin that is in your heart. Why? Why? Because his goal is actually not our comfort, it's our holiness. And the only way we grow in holiness is by being with Jesus. What drives us to Jesus? Seeing our sin. What we would love more than anything else is for Christianity to work in such a way that we come to him and get our one-time fix, and then we go on living a life that is completely independent of any need for God. And he will not have it. So you're going to keep going back to Jesus over and over and over again. And what you're going to find when you go to him the first time and the 5,000th time is you are going to find someone who sees the corruption of your heart to the bottom. One who sees you better than you see you. And you know what he says? He says, I see you, I love you, and I'm not going anywhere. And we're going to keep finding that heart Over and over and over again. And as we go to him and we trust in that love and we experience that love, a strange thing happens. One degree at a time, we become like him. And then one day, the curtain's going to come up, this life's going to be over, and we're actually going to see him. And what happens is, it says when we see him, we will be like him. Then sin will be a distant memory. The foolishness of our lives will be a distant memory. But until that day, keep coming back to Jesus, trust in him, see him, and find the one who is greater than our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts are deceitful, they're complex, Lord, we acknowledge that we can't even see the true sinfulness of our hearts. They're far worse than we know. But, Lord, our sinfulness doesn't surprise you. And so, Lord, I pray from my own heart, I pray for the people that are here. Lord, that rather than sitting downstream trying to work on behaviors, but for those that are in Christ, we would begin to target repentance at the heart that by regularly walking in repentance of confessing, believing, and obeying we would gradually become more and more like the image of your son. Or anyone in here who is not in Christ who spent their life trying to just fix behaviors and frustrated, they feel like they're going nowhere I pray that they would stop trying to be their own savior and that they would come to you as the old hymn says put their deadly doing down And trust in you. And Jesus, we rejoice in the fact that you promise that you will never cast anyone out who comes to you in faith. Lord, thank you for being the one who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, and who is going to stick with us. The one who is going to finish the work that he began. Lord, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.